So welcome to the lecture this evening. My name is Arne Westad. I'm one of two directors of the Cold War Studies Center here at LSE with my very good friend, Rosemary Cox, sitting down there. I should thank Mick for being instrumental in organizing tonight's event uh, and inviting our speaker. We are extremely lucky tonight to have with us uh, Dr. Andrei Grachov, who uh, was born in Moscow in 1941. He graduated uh, in history, I'm happy to say, uh, from the Moscow Institute of International Relations. He was the editor of uh, World Youth, the magazine um, for the World Youth Movement in Budapest, Hungary. Uh, he became the deputy director of the International Department of the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and a key advisor for President Mikhail Gorbachev. He was later appointed the official spokesman of the president of the USSR until Gorbachev's resignation in December 1991. After leaving office, uh, Dr. Grachov has worked on a number of publications. He has published a volume of memoirs and a number of other books, and he presently divides his time between Paris and Moscow. Before uh, turning over to tonight's speaker, I just wanted to read to you as introduction an excerpt from Mr. Grachov's memoirs, which I think are among the most interesting memoirs that came out of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union in terms of really understanding what happened on the inside. There are very few people, if any, who were as close to President Gorbachev as Mr. Grachov was in the final days of the Soviet Union. And this is what he writes in his memoirs about President Gorbachev's very last day in office. On December 25th, this is 1991, the president arrived at the Kremlin later than usual and closeted himself in his office. His anteroom was strangely empty. Not a single visitor was present. All the receptionists had come in at the same time to sort out the books Gorbachev was taking with him and discard papers that were no longer needed. I showed him, Gorbachev, the front page of Moskovsky Komsomolets, whose headline was a quotation from Pushkin. Russian speakers here will know this. No, I shall not die completely, it said. My soul by the liar will survive and escape corruption, Gorbachev completed without emphasis, smiling. Later on in the studio, the television studio where the actual resignation took place, which was known in the Kremlin as room number one, Gorbachev entered the room at five minutes to seven, and greeting people he knew as he passed, he made his way with some difficulty to the brightly lit table where a microphone awaited him. He was carrying a briefcase containing his speech and the decree enacting his resignation from the post of Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. Gorbachev placed the decree in front of him and then asked suddenly, when should I sign it, before or after my statement? He was speaking to Yakovlev and me, this is Grachov speaking, who were trying to manage all this chaos. Our opinions differed, and we each had our own set of reasons for one or the other approach. While we argued, Gorbachev asked me for a pen and tested it on a sheet of paper. I prefer a smoother writing one, he said. The head of the CNN crew, who was present at the taping, 
reached over my shoulder to offer his pen. Gorbachev, satisfied with the instrument and paying no further attention to our discussion, placed the decree of resignation in front of him, signed it with a flourish, and set it aside. Two very ordinarily looking men in civilian clothes were sitting in the president's anteroom with the instrument that looked like a cellular phone. These two colonels who accompanied the president wherever he went were in fact the button, or rather one of the elements in a complex network equipped to control the launch of nuclear devices. These people then appeared suddenly and disappeared into the corridors in search of the new boss. We are very pleased to have Mr. Andrei Grachov with us for tonight's lecture. We are all looking forward to listen to what you have to say. Please. Thank you very much for this introduction. And, uh, uh, I can tell you that since those lines were written uh, quite a number of years ago, I suddenly uh, felt moved. Uh, um, you forced me to go back into, in, in that history. I'll force you to go with me in, uh, in that history with the subject that you, uh, that you have proposed. And I would like to thanking you for this uh, possibility to speak at this very honorary podium to congratulate you on the selection of the date. <coughs> I don't know, deliberate or not, but it is uh, 17 years ago, precisely, that the Berlin Wall fell. And uh, one month and a half from now, it will be 15 years exactly uh, from the 25th of December the collapse and the, the breakup of the Soviet Union and uh, resignation of Gorbachev. And these two dates uh, uh, are in direct relation uh, to our subject because uh, though you, you suggested as a title the collapse of Soviet empire in fact, uh, one needs two dates because there were two empires. One, the external one, the, the outside zone of influence, which stretched far beyond the Yalta zone of uh, influence attributed to the Soviet Union in 45. And the second was uh, the Soviet Union, the historical uh, Russian and Soviet empire. But uh, if, in fact, uh, the Soviet Union was carrying a number of characteristics uh, typical for an empire, be it Austro-Hungarian or uh, Ottoman or a colonial one like British or, uh, or French, it certainly was uh, a special kind of an empire. <coughs> well, as... Uh, Many of you remember uh, Lev Tolstoy in Anna Karenina. He starts, actually, Anna Karenina by a phrase, 
All happy families are alike. All unhappy families are different. Well, since you can hardly uh, qualify an empire a happy family, that means that uh, all empires are special. And maybe uh, the Soviet one was more special than the others. It was, uh, it was ideological. It was evil. And uh, at the same time, it was a, a one country which uh, uh, broke to pieces in 1991. Well, I would like to start precisely with the, um, with the term collapse. With the years that have passed, we have uh, many, maybe even too many, explanations of why did it happen. Well, there are people and books that uh, explain it by the uh, kind of a natural law of empires that uh, should not, should have not, could not survive in the 20th century. There are those, uh, especially in the, in the U.S., who uh, pretend that the collapse of the Soviet empire came as a result of the West's resolution and determination, and particularly under the pressure of the SDI, uh, very hypothetical and very improbable project of, uh, of Ronald Reagan. The SDI, meaning I have always remind myself that I am addressing an audience that happily lives with a quite different vocabulary than we uh, uh, in our years. Well, uh, alongside the Americans, there were others who were claiming their at least part uh, of action in provoking the, 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 the collapse of, of the Soviet Empire. The Poles would say that it was the Pope and Solidarność, uh, the Muslims would say that it was the defeat of the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. And there you would find uh, a lot, uh, especially inside uh, the former Soviet Union, who would say that the real uh, reason of the collapse of the Soviet empire was vodka, uh, <laughs> uh, meaning the anti-alcoholic campaign uh, carelessly uh, launched by Gorbachev. Yes, or imprudently. Uh, well, you should be indulgent with my, <laughs> with my English. <clears throat> well, uh, yet even if, uh, uh, even taken together, all these reasons do not answer the, the following questions. Why should this collapse occur, collapse occur at that time? And why should it take such a mild form of a kind of a civilized divorce, avoiding or sparing uh, for the former Soviet Union the nightmare of a Yugoslavia and the civil war. Also, why should the collapse of uh, uh, such a powerful empire, after all, the second world superpower, should start from Moscow, from the heart of uh, the system and the state, and even 
more directly from the Kremlin, which contrasts greatly, by the way, a number of other prophecies that uh, have been formulated, like, for example, the one um, by, uh, given by Ellen Carrer Dancos, a, uh, a well-known Soviet expert in France, in France who was uh, announcing that the collapse of the empire would come in the form of the uprising of the Central Asian republics. One of the great paradoxes of Gorbachev's uh, historic uh, balance sheet, uh, from my point of view, has become the fact that, uh, at least uh, regarding the collapse of the Soviet Union, this historic result of his action did not coincide with his initial project. Until now, by the way, Gorbachev, if you talk to him, would refuse to take the praise for what happened to the Soviet Union, insisting that it could have uh, been secured. And the explanation of this paradox for me is uh, a rather simple uh, fact. Naturally, Gorbachev, as uh, any other politician, could change his immediate political goals. But uh, throughout his uh, political action and stay in power, he never diverted from his main course, principles, and goal. The democratization of the Soviet society and its reconciliation and reunion of his country with the rest of the world. And this fidelity to certain moral principles was applied uh, particularly in two very important cases. First, uh, with regard to his initial project, the project of Perestroika, which consisted in an attempt to rejuvenile, to galvanize, uh, and after all, to save the Russian or Russia's socialist project, launched in 1917 by uh, the revolution trying to separate the project from, uh, uh, from Stalinism, going very much in the tradition of uh, a whole generation of Soviet shistidisatniks, uh, we call it in Russian, the generation of the 60s. That means, in other words, the children of the 20th Congress and the beginning of the destalinization uh, launched by Khrushchev. And second, after Gorbachev realized that uh, the system of revitalization of, uh, of this model was no more possible, he tried to save the federal state, the union state, by project of its reform, even at the price of sacrificing the former political system, trying to transform the Soviet Union into a federation or even a confederation, inspired by the example of the European Union. Yet in both cases, he had to discover that since without the use of force and coercion, that was not possible, he made a choice in favor of fidelity to the bigger project, 
that of democratic reform. The two empires to which I referred right now had one common means, a kind of a, uh, a tie, and even I would call it a staple that was bounding them, force. But uh, there were specific means to keep together the different sets of states and territories. For uh, uh, the countries of the Warsaw Pact, mainly the Eastern European ones, it was not only the force, that means the stick, but also the carrot, the Comic-Con organization, the uh, Council of Economic Assistance, providing cheap oil and gas and other Soviet resources that uh, was transforming this uh, Soviet empire, again, in a very specific one, in an empire where metropoli was living poorer than its clients. In uh, the Soviet Union itself, I mean the inner empire, again, the force was, uh, after all, the dominant feature of the system. But apart from the coercion of the totalitarian regime, there were also other elements like bureaucracy. In Soviet times, it was called nomenclature, but it was largely inherited from the imperial Russian state. And, strangely enough, for the biggest state in the world, the threat of the... Uh, internal aggression, invasion, the, in the external threat. Gorbachev's political reform gradually and one after another brought about the elimination of all of these staples. Having proclaimed the freedom of choice in his uh, 1988 speech in the United Nations, he uh, buried the Brezhnev Doctrine and the force was the element of keeping the, uh, the external empire. He dismantled the party's power monopoly that uh, was used also by the other regimes in uh, East European countries as a way of rule over the society. Starting a new detente with the West, and particularly with the United States, which produced a new climate in uh, the East-West relations, he destroyed the spirit of the besieged fortress that served from Stalin to Brezhnev times throughout the Cold War as an efficient means to suppress internal dissent and to justify to serve as an alibi for the daily misery of millions of Soviet households. Maybe uh, at first, as a convinced internationalist and a model Soviet citizen, Gorbachev could not imagine that in a multinational country his radical divorce with Stalinism and democratization of political life would not only logically open the way for various national separatist and autonomist movements, but that most of the 
social, political, and economic conflicts and contradictions inside this huge society and reality that was the Soviet Union would dress in national costumes. Going back to the Chronicle, Gorbachev himself set fire to the powder in the Soviet Empire in December 1986 when he tried to replace a powerful leader of the Kazakh Republic, Mr. Kunaev, by his nominee of Russian origin. Kunaev was a veteran of Brezhnev's guard. Behind the violent streets, manifestations that were provoked uh, by uh, this nomination uh, and the first casualties of perestroika were not so much the hurt feelings of the young people who went uh, down the streets, but the mafia interests, the feudal privileges of the local party bosses, which repeated sometime later in Uzbekistan and in Azerbaijan, where inter-ethnic riots were artfully provoked. Next came the challenge of the central power, to the central power coming from the proletarians of the Soviet Empire, the Crimean Tatars, who as other people who had been suppressed and deported by Stalin and not completely rehabilitated by Khrushchev, had nothing to lose starting with their homes and territory. They staged their manifestations in the center of Moscow, on the Red Square, and in this square facing the building of the Central Committee, challenging Gorbachev and forcing him to a choice, either to suppress them by force or go ahead from the point at which Khrushchev stopped. Further on, Gorbachev had to go further from the point not only where Khrushchev stopped, but when, where he retreated in Budapest in 56. In 1988 came the time of the old-time interethnic conflicts in the Caucasus, rudely suppressed by the Soviet regimes, the Armenian-Azeri conflict in, uh, over the Karabakh that produced violent pogroms in Sungate. And then April 1989 in Tbilisi, where local nationalists, headed by Gamsa Khurdia, demanded simultaneously the autonomy for Georgia from the central state, and at the same time the suppression of autonomy for Abkhazia, which is a, a region of autonomous region of uh, uh, ethnic minority within Georgia. This manifestation provoked clashes uh, with the army and police and again new victims. Next year, Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, where the National Front with the former Politburo member, Gedar Aliyev, commanding these troops behind the scenes, tried to storm the local party and government headquarters. Had it happened now, the Western press would have qualified it as another colored revolution. 
this time Gorbachev declared the state of siege and sent the troops to avoid new anti-Russian and anti-Armenian pogroms. But the clash with the army produced more than 100 victims. If after his speech in the United Nations, December 1988, and immediately following the, the dramatic events in Tbilisi, speaking inside the, in the session of Politburo, Gorbachev said that he was determined to avoid by all means the use of force while handling the, the internal evolution and the reform inside the Soviet Union. He said, I quote more or less, once we suggest for the, to, re, to, re, to renounce the use of force in international relations, how can we resort to it inside our country? After Baku, he wrote in his memoirs that he recognized in extreme situations for political authority the necessity to use force to protect civilian population. But the great paradox of his December 1988 speech in the General Assembly of the United Nations where he formulated his foreign policy doctrine, the new political thinking offered to, uh, to the world, where he announced the, not only the burial of the Brezhnev doctrine, but uh, the freedom of choice and uh, the withdrawal of almost half a million of Soviet troops from the Eastern Europe, that though this speech was directed mostly to the West, it was above all heard, first of all, in the East, in Eastern Europe, especially since the announcement of the withdrawal of Soviet troops from these countries was meaning much more than just another solemn political statement. And it was this speech that, uh, starting with the spring of 1989, provoked the landslide of velvet revolutions in the Eastern Europe and the beginning of the end of uh, the first external empire presided by the Soviet Union. In fact, Gorbachev's new political thinking and the action of his government eliminated the two basic elements that uh, were present in, uh, in keeping the, uh, uh, the outside empire of the stick, the elimination of Brezhnev doctrine, and of the carrot, because soon after that, the Comic-Con was, uh, was dissolved and uh, Gorbachev and his uh, government announced to uh, uh, the East European allies of the Soviet Union that the time of cheap credits, credits and uh, cheap oil and gas were over, was over. One of the uh, assistants and advisors of Gorbachev, his uh, advisor for economic affairs, Nikolai Petrakov, told me that, according to him, the Soviet Union 
has lost the Third World War once it started to prepare for it seriously. Investing almost 60%, if not more, of its national product in the various sectors of uh, defense, economy, science, technology. Yet by mid-80s, it was obvious, not only for Gorbachev, but the entire political leadership in the Soviet Union, that uh, the USSR could neither extend the sphere of its influence with the fiasco of invasion of Afghanistan, nor keep under control what it already possessed, like in Poland. Those were the two examples, one the invasion, the other the non-invasion that signaled the beginning of the decline of that empire. Gorbachev, already in 1986, in a secret meeting with the leaders of uh, socialist countries, warned them about uh, his intention to evacuate Afghanistan, but also to change the nature of relations between Moscow and its allies in the Eastern Europe. In fact, he warned them in advance, meaning or intending to give them time to prepare for the uh, changes he was planning to introduce inside the Soviet system and inside the Soviet Union. He also announced to them that uh, from that time on they should not count on Soviet armies to keep those regimes in power. At that time, most of the East European leaders just couldn't believe him. And one could understand them because uh, some of them were thinking that, uh, okay, that's another statement coming from a Soviet leader. Khrushchev, after all, in 1956, he was producing the kind of a statements which was no, no worse than this one. And then came 1956 and Budapest. Or in case he tries to implement this policy and reform, he wouldn't be allowed to do it. And maybe several months after Gorbachev, they would have to uh, confirm their fidelity to another Soviet leader, like Ligachev, for example. Yet in 1989 came the season of a change provoked, first of all, by uh, the transformation that took place already inside the Soviet Union. And <clears throat> the 89 season of uh, velvet revolutions in Eastern Europe, but uh, already in the Baltic states, that means inside the USSR, came as a reaction to the uh, new political thinking philosophy formulated by Gorbachev in 1988. The chronology of this year repeated the one of 1956. First started the Poles, bringing to power the anti-communist government of Solidarność with a prime minister serving under a communist uh, president, Jaruzelski. And Gorbachev not only didn't interfere. Jaruzelski told me that <clears throat> prior to the elections that uh, he knew the communists would be losing, he 
went to Moscow and discussed the situation with Gorbachev and got a green light for him and encouragement. Next were the Hungarians. Opening the border with Austria and then letting the first uh, thousands of the Eastern Germans to cross uh, the border of, uh, of the Warsaw Pact, uh, uh, preferring this section of the border to the Berlin Wall at, at that time. Differently from Khrushchev, Gorbachev didn't use force to keep the empire. The Baltic states represented a much harder case for him because they were part of the Soviet Union and their claim for independence were coming at a moment which already from the point of view of internal political tension was extremely difficult for him. They were dangerously exposing Gorbachev in his confrontation with the conservative opposition in Moscow and he tried his best to persuade the Bolts to, to wait. To wait until the, the, the calendar of the perestroika would help resolve the problem of their search of autonomy. At that time, the claims were autonomy. But the Bolts didn't want to wait. They didn't uh, want to follow Gorbachev's timetable time and also, uh, they didn't want to follow George Bush's and Mitterrand and Kohl's advice because uh, all these Western leaders, fearing the, uh, uh, the difficulties and maybe uh, the activation of the resistance of conservative forces uh, against Gorbachev in Moscow, were trying to to contain Landsbergis, uh, the, the, the leader of the, of the Lithuanian parliament and of the, of the National Front. But the Balts were following their own logic, precisely because they too were fearing this kind of revolt of the conservatives in the, in the back of Gorbachev. Gorbachev for them was their window of possibility. And this, they didn't know if it wouldn't shut Abruptly, In fact, the Bolts uh, were wise enough to apprehend the putsch of the conservatives against Gorbachev, except that they uh, believed that it could come earlier than August 91. And yet the fatal role for the, fa for the fate of the, uh, of the Union state was, uh, was played not by any of the uh, national republics of the, of the Soviet Union, but by the Russian Federation itself and its leaders. Gorbachev's adversaries of different orientation from conservatives like Ligachev, the leader of uh, Russian conservative communist uh, wing of the party, to radical Democrats headed at that time by Boris Yeltsin, uh, though diametrically opposite in their own relations and irreconcilable, played jointly against him the Russian card. The former, the conservatives, uh, 
trying to force him to resort to force in order to secure the unitary state, but de facto to force him to renounce his project of democratization of the system. The latter, the radical Democrats, they didn't conceal their intention to destroy the Union state with the purpose to chase Gorbachev from the Kremlin. At that time, Boris Yeltsin, I'm tempted always to say a paradox, but there are no paradoxes in history. It's a logic, political logic. So Boris Yeltsin, an outspoken anti-communist, was resorting to the tactics of Vladimir Lenin, uh, who at the time when he was mobilizing uh, his political army against the Tsarist regime uh, in the center of Imperial Russia was uh, gathering the troops of, uh, on the periphery of the Russian Empire. And his slogan addressed uh, not only to republics but even to the regions of Russia, take as much sovereignty as you can digest. Uh, as well as the decision of the Russian parliament to confirm the superiority of the Russian laws, republican laws, against those of the, of the federal state, provoked what was called at that time in, uh, in the Soviet Union the parade of sovereignties. Already in the autumn of 1990, Boris Yeltsin was threatening Gorbachev that Russia might leave the Soviet Union if he doesn't accept his uh, conditions of the, uh, of the political alliance. Other republics and regions, uh, sometimes it went uh, even to the, uh, to the regions of Moscow, followed the example. Moldavia, one of the Soviet republics, voted its, uh, uh, its joining of Romania. Uh, well, I mentioned already that the Armenian uh, parliament and the Karabakh parliament, uh, the Karabakh is an uh, enclave, uh, what's the English for it? Yeah, uh, inside Azerbaijan, voted uh, their, uh, uh, their reunion. Uh, Kazakhstan declared the closure of the testing ground uh, for uh, nuclear weapons in Semipalatinsk and also claimed for itself Baikonur, the, the launching uh, uh, site for uh, the Soviet uh, uh, space uh, ships and, uh, and missiles. And the Russian government formally announced its uh, intention to uh, restore the Kuril Islands to Japan. You can imagine a, a mess it was providing uh, in, uh, in the country. Under this joint pressure of Republican national elites, Gorbachev was trying to maneuver he staged a referendum in March 1991, 
and got the approval of more than 70% of the Russian population, that, of the Soviet population, I'm sorry. Uh, not all the republics uh, were participating in the, in the vote, but in those that participated, over 70% voted in favor of keeping the, the Union state among those republics was Ukraine. Gorbachev, in his turn, resorted to Lenin's tactics. But this time it was a different Lenin, not the Lenin that was fighting the Tsarist Empire, but the Lenin in power. And uh, this time Gorbachev uh, borrowed Lenin's uh, tactics of uh, the Brest Peace Treaty. The treaty that Lenin accepted to sign with the Germans uh, at the time of the desperate defeat of, uh, uh, of the Russian uh, uh, revolutionaries that was uh, uh, sacrificing an important part of Russian territory to, uh, uh, to, the, to the Germans, expecting that uh, in the long run, and this, uh, uh, this hope of Lenin was after all justified, uh, Russia would uh, rebuild its territory. So Gorbachev's Brest Treaty uh, took the form of uh, a new union treaty that he uh, convinced the leaders of nine republics out of 15, at least nine republics out of 15, but who promised and accepted to sign the new union treaty that was transforming the former rigid centralized and militarized state into a flexible soft union of, uh, of Gorbachev. He suggested a confederal state, a confederation, though uh, happily the Russian language being quite a a flexible one, suggests that uh, an evasive term, a union, could mean at the same time a union, a federal union, and a confederative state. But de facto, the formula that uh, uh, was suggested by Gorbachev to keep the relations between the former republics of the Soviet Union, the republics of the Soviet Union at that time, was the confederation. He even uh, declared, ready to satisfy the appetites of uh, the Russian uh, Republican lead, that he would be ready not to present himself as candidate for the next president's election, de facto offering to Boris Yeltsin the place, the place of the president of the new Union state. But it was him and his perestroika project that were the targets. Gorbachev's dream was a union inspired by the example of, uh, of the European Union community at that time. I had the chance to uh, assist at his last official meeting with uh, French President Francois Mitterrand in November of 1991 several weeks before uh, 
his resignation, and the two were uh, speculating about uh, an eventual perspective of, uh, of the future Europe that would be posed on two pires, you can say it. The West integrated according to uh, the logic of the European integration engaged by the Treaty of Rome, Rome and the East with the uh, reformed Soviet Union and with the Eastern Europe that would accept the new formulas of association. And these two supports of the new Europe, these two lungs, uh, borrowing the expression of uh, Jean-Paul II, could be uh, the real foundation of the of the new Europe. But uh, during this conversation, Mitterrand had reason to tell him that uh, we have already our Western fire. It's up to you to take care of yours. Well, uh, it wasn't possible due to the uh, logic that acquired, had acquired uh, already the process of disintegration, internal disintegration, of the, uh, of the Soviet state, but also uh, the explosion of the internal uh, contradictions of the various political poles inside the Russian society. By the way, in July, at the time when the new Union Treaty was uh, drafted, Yeltsin accepted to sign it. And this is maybe an element of uh, the answer to a question that... Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of uh, my lecture, was Gorbachev's dream possible? You would never know because it was uh, aborted by two putsches, by two coups, one in August 91, followed immediately by uh, uh, a series of statements of independence declared by the parliaments and governments of practically all the former Soviet republics. Some of them were in a hurry to declare their independence because uh, having observed the putsch and the tanks in uh, Moscow on the Red Square, they uh, apprehended the comeback to the USSR, the return of the, of the Soviet empire. Some, to the contrary, having observed the triumph of the Russia's radical Democrats, were apprehending the difficult relationship uh, with the new Russian leaders and new Russia headed by uh, Boris Yeltsin, more assertive, more authoritarian, and uh, for this reason, uh, not acceptable for many. A curious paradox, General Dudaev, a leader of uh, Chechen resistance, who at that time in uh, August 91 was uh, just a leader of uh, political uh, uh, forces in uh, opposition, poli political opposition in, in Chechnya, formally said that he felt happy to stay inside the soft union of Gorbachev. But 
after the, uh, the fiasco of the coup in Moscow and the takeover of uh, the, 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 the affairs of the Russian Federation by Yeltsin and his team, in November 91, the first uh, clash between the Chechen uh, separatists, Chechen autonomous uh, uh, government, and the Russian state uh, uh, started, and practically the first Chechen war uh, should be dated uh, by the fall of 19, uh, the beginning of it should be, be dated, uh, traced to the uh, fall of 1991. The second putsch, the second coup that uh, took place several months after August 91, just formalized, uh, confirmed uh, the already existing reality having dismantled the elements of the previous uh, Union state, the repression apparatus with the army and the KGB, with the party bureaucracy, and certainly with the outside fear that was partly based on reality and real confrontation between the Soviet Union and the West, partly instrumentalized, and imagined by the Soviet leaders. Gorbachev didn't have means to keep this state together. Having not actually the possibility, or received the possibility, to use his chance to cover an abyss between the former state and the future dream state in one leap. When he was later accused of not sending a special commando to arrest the plotters in uh, Belorussia, just the three leaders of three republics who uh, announced the dissolution of the Soviet state and forcing in this way Gorbachev for resignation. He said that he would never accept this because this decision or this formula of the dissolution of the Union State was ratified by the Republican parliaments. And Gorbachev told me, me who had invested so much in creating the parliaments, the parliamentarian culture, and uh, uh, this new reality uh, in, uh, in the political system of the former Soviet Union, how would I destroy it by uh, my own hands? He resigned, uh, as you re reminded us, on the 25th of on December. And in fact, uh, it's him, despite the fact that he certainly refuses uh, the compliment, who should be uh, qualified, maybe praised, uh, maybe blamed. It depends on the, uh, on, uh, on the choice as the real destroyer of this double empire, uh, just for uh, one reason, the man who refused to be an emperor. Thank you.
Thank you very much, André, for a truly fascinating lecture. Uh, there is something about the development of history when it's seen by an insider, which brings up all kinds of questions um, beyond the uh, more general historical analysis that some of us historians are very fond of. So I wanted to start by asking a rather personal question um, in terms of your views of, um, of Mikhail Gorbachev. How important was his Russianness to him? to all of this process. Um, I remember in, in 1990, when I first met Gorbachev, some of the issues that came up was very much about his representing all of the former Soviet Union. But obviously he was a Russian. He stood in a Russian cultural tradition, and he stood in a very distinct Russian political tradition through the Communist Party that he represented. When this process was going on, those very last crucial years and months of his time in power, what role do you think that played to him, that he himself came out of that Russian origin while representing a multinational empire, as you put it? Well, uh, to start with, he was uh, Russian, but not only Russian. He was also Ukrainian, mm. half Russian, half That's Ukrainian. True. Maybe this was facilitating uh, to him uh, his other, uh, I would say, and maybe main identity, which I would think he would uh, claim even now. Uh, he considered himself to be Soviet. I'll give you an example that should uh, more or less answer your question, at least partly. When he selected, uh, when he chose uh, Shevardnadze to be his uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs to replace uh, Gromyko, who, by the way, was a Belarusian. This just to give you the idea, you know that the element of Russianness mm. was very much uh, kind of, uh, you know, dissipated by this uh, new notion of Soviet nation that was uh, the formula uh, at that time. So when he called Shevardnadze, and uh, for Shevardnadze mm. it was certainly a big surprise, he was never known to be an expert in international relations, and uh, the first argument, uh, you know, just to... Mm to express his doubt uh, that, uh, that he sorted uh, to Gorbachev was, but I'm a Georgian. Mm. Well, you should also remember there was a, a, another Georgian who was at the head of the he Soviet did. state uh, for a long time, 30 years. And you know what was Gorbachev's answer? He said, well, what you are saying, you are a Soviet man. So I would say that uh, for Gorbachev, his Russianness, well, he was certainly a patriot. He was as much uh, a Cossack, that means a, 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 a person uh, very much uh, associated with this particular region in Russia, southern Russia, the northern Caucasus. But it was this uh, knowledge of this region which borders uh, uh, the Muslim areas, Chechnya in particular, that made him extremely cautious on the one hand, but uh, on other occasions when the whole volcano of the Caucasus, political volcano, was starting to, 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 to open, uh, largely provoked by, uh, by the, this Armenian initiative to, uh, uh, to put on the table the, the, the Karabakh question, 
uh, when Yakovlev, uh, his uh, uh, closest uh, uh, ally and advisor, brought to the Kremlin the representatives of uh, the uh, Armenian diaspora, mm. uh, I remember Gorbachev telling them, you are mad to propose the reconsideration of borders in the Caucasus. Mm. It's going to be blood. Let's take a few more questions. Let's start up there. Yes, the lady turned from the back. And speak into the microphone, if you could, please. Um, hello, my name is... Can you hear? Yep. Um, Alexander Yanovska, Department of Management. Um, I have a question about how would you... would you evaluate the real danger of going back to a military or to a real Soviet type of regime? Because you mentioned how other republics were afraid of, of it and how they saw it as a window of opportunity, Gorbachev's uh, reform politics. But um, as an insider, I mean, this is exactly what you can say as that we might not be able to read somewhere else. What was the serious danger and how strong were the forces behind the conservatives? Thanks. I'll take just one more question before we... Yes, on the other side of that. What about relations with uh, Cuba and Castro? What was Gorbachev's um, views on that? All right, Andre. Okay. I answer this to yes. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, the danger of real return uh, uh, to the USSR. <coughs> Again, I think it's, uh, it's better to, uh, you know, in my capacity of the insider, the, let's say, the, the living relique. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't say that. <laughs> uh, to, uh, 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 to produce the, uh, I mean, this, some citations, the opinion of the others. Well, already uh, from a point of view of many intelligent people and uh, wise observers of the Russian scene, uh, it was already no more possible. It would, uh, would mean an insanity and it would, uh, would never produce the result. Uh, Gorbachev when Yakovlev, again Yakovlev, uh, with some pieces of information that uh, leaked from the uh, I mean, uh, structures that were already engaged in the preparation of the coup uh, warned him about uh, a possible action against him, a possible preparation of the coup. Gorbachev replied to him, but uh, no, it's, it's a stupidity. They are certainly very average people, uh, but uh, they're not stupid because uh, that goes nowhere, uh, I mean, this plan. Another example of uh, the opinion of another man, I think he was a, a speaker in, mm -hmm. in, this, uh, uh, in this hall, Jack Matlock. Mm -hmm. uh, he himself, uh, he too uh, got this, this kind of information. And as, a, well, as an obedient uh, civil servant, he certainly communicated it to uh, his president, uh, George Bush. 
adding his comment that uh, here is the information I, I have received from uh, Moscow Mayor Gabriel Popov, but uh, I cannot uh, take it seriously because I think that a project of this kind would lead nowhere. Well, until now, the, the, the organizers of this, uh, this plot against Gorbachev claim that had they been uh, harsh enough, determined enough, I personally spoke to one of the plotters, uh, the one who was not uh, among the, 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 the formal team of, of the putschists, as we call them, but who was uh, a bit behind the scene, the former uh, chairman of the Supreme Soviet, Lukyanov. And I remember him commenting the situation. He said, well, it's not in this way that you are preparing a real coup. Uh, meaning that uh, uh, the, the people uh, who staged it uh, didn't have any determination uh, mm -hmm. of the type of Pinochet or uh, why not a Dan Peng in Tiananmen so uh, well uh, the result proved uh, what uh, what was the reality that uh, uh, the society not only did not follow the, the putsches but uh, uh, offered a, a serious resistance to it, and together the uh, the human kind of uh, uh, belt uh, of several thousand people that were protecting the White House and the action of Yeltsin at that time uh, played uh, the decisive role that uh, that forced the, the plotters to. Uh, 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 to renounce. But curiously enough, it was uh, in the night uh, when the, the storm was supposed to take pl a place and when the, 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 the order to, to fire into the crowd was uh, to be given that uh, the deputies to the plotters, the first deputies of the KGB, of the army and of the interior, having uh, made the circle of Moscow in night and having uh, realized uh, that it's going to be a bloodbath, they returned to the uh, bosses saying, uh, we're not going with it. And this means that perestroika has transformed uh, also these people. Well, uh, as to uh, Cuba and Castro, well, Gorbachev always uh, felt uh, uh, and never concealed it a big personal respect for Castro. And uh, he praised his action, uh, uh, especially in the initial stage of, uh, of, uh, of revolution and, uh, uh, and the whole history of relationship between uh, Cuba and uh, and the Soviet Union, and uh, uh, he was feeling Castro's uh, hesitation to follow him uh, with his project of perestroika, because uh, certainly it was, if, let's say, proposed as a model for other 
socialist countries would be meaning, at least for many of them, the collapse of their regimes. This was, by the way, the reason why Gorbachev, uh, having renounced uh, the Brezhnev doctrine, wouldn't wish to introduce, let's say, the, the Brezhnev doctrine uh, à l'envers, mm. uh, upside reverse, down. In reverse, yeah. yeah. in reverse, imposing on, uh, uh, on his allies his men who would be democratic, progressive, reform-minded, and so on. He wanted uh, these countries to, to follow their own timetable and their own path of the evolution. And when he went uh, to see Castro uh, in uh, 1989, I think, yes, it was 1989, uh, before coming to, uh, to Britain, mm -hmm. Uh, in spring, I think. Uh, he tried to explain to him the philosophy of the new political thinking and his conception of freedom of choice. And finally, both agreed on the formula that certainly may be uh, considered as tricky. But Gorbachev uh, 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 obtained Castro's support to the formula of the freedom of choice because Castro said, okay, but if the people chooses or exercises his right for a freedom of choice and chooses freely the socialist regime, then it's, it's right to, uh, to stick to it. And uh, with this, they, uh, well, they embraced. Yes. Some of, some of his advisors, though, had a much more negative impression of Castro. I remember Chernyayev's diaries, for instance, with regard to that particular meeting, uh, distinctly negative in terms of their impression of Castro. Well, uh, I prefer that you invite Chernyayev. <laughs> <laughs> we might just do that. He might improve his English. Yes, the lady in front over here. Yes. Then. Good evening, Andrei Gashev. You have to speak into the microphone. Good evening, Andrei Gashev. My name is Miranda Jane Campbell. I'm a British citizen. I'm a writer. Um, two questions. Uh, the first question I wanted to ask you, given everything you've said about the collapse of the Soviet Empire and um, Gorbachev's um, decline to be an emperor, um, what are your thoughts on the current situation in Russia and uh, especially the, the, uh, the special relationship between Putin, um, the United States, and uh, um, Bush and Tony Blair. And the other thing I wanted to ask you was, when you, um, given that globalization is a modern form of cultural imperialism, speak louder, given that globalization is a modern form of cultural imperialism, when you retire, will you expose the truth about globalization and the individuals who have been martyred in the name thank, of... Um, thank you very much. Then the gentleman over there, please. Commerce, industry and government. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good evening. My name is Simon. Uh, I'm studying here at LSC and I come from Georgia. Uh, I have a question. Uh, uh, from your point of view, what, what is the reasoning behind the Russia's uh, imperialistic, uh, sometimes aggressive policy towards the post-Soviet countries? Uh, I first of all mean country where I come from, Georgia, uh, in respect of Abkhazian and South Ossetian conflicts. Moldova and Ukraine after revolution and maybe some other countries as well. I'll take I'll take one more in the middle in the middle over there the lady over there. We we need the microphones. 
could, could the stewards please be a bit more active with the microphones and move towards those that point to before they have to speak? Thank you. Uh, my name is Daya, and um, uh, I apologize if my question just slightly uh, connected to the topic, but I wonder what's your opinion regarding uh, Krim gaining independent status. Uh, you mean Crimea? Crimea, yeah. Yes. Crimea. Okay. Okay. Huh. Well, you uh, got something to sink your teeth into fr that. Frankly speaking, uh, you know, all the questions that uh, can hardly <laughs> uh, be related to, uh, to the now subject, though, uh, <laughs> though, well, it's not a joke, uh, something that I'm going to tell you, but after all, Gorbachev should be considered as responsible for everything that happens after him. Uh, just to, to confirm this, I, uh, I shall, for example, give you the results of the two polls that were published recently in Moscow, answering uh, a question, who is responsible for a war in Chechnya? Uh, number one, number two person. So number one comes Gorbachev, not Yeltsin as you uh, would, uh, would, uh, would think. And second question, who is responsible for the, for the shooting of the Russian parliament in 1993? As you imagine, uh, it was two, two years after Gorbachev's resignation and the order to send the tanks to, uh, to shoot on the parliament was given by, by Yeltsin. And again, Gorbachev came as number one. <laughs> so you can see people take him as responsible for everything because it's with him that all the trouble started uh, for many. Well, uh, going uh, to, to, to the first question, uh, well, now it's even not Yeltsin, it's Putin. Uh, it's Putin and Bush and, and Blair. What should I say? Uh, I, uh, I had a quite a, a, a talk today uh, in, the, in the Chatham House on, uh, on, the, uh, on Russia's uh, U.S. relationship, uh, Putin uh, and post-Putin. Uh, um, it's a, a special subject. You want me to address it in one or two sentences? I can just say that, uh, well, uh, it's natural that... Uh, uh, these leaders, on the one hand, are, uh, are forced to, to cooperate, uh, despite the fact that they represent different characters, different psychologies, and different uh, political projects. Uh, maybe repeating the formula that I used during uh, uh, this uh, afternoon talk today, I can uh, tell you that from my point of view, at a certain moment, uh, right after the 9-11, Putin even uh, uh, went as far uh, in his expression of solidarity with Bush and with, with Americans affected by the, uh, uh, by the shock uh, of the terrorist attack that uh, he offered his solidarity more or less uh, proposing to, uh, to be Blair Beast in the East, to be a kind of a junior partner of the Americans in the uh, in this anti-terrorist coalition. Uh, well, the, uh, the development of, uh, or the evolution of a relationship between Russia and, uh, and the West since uh, that time, from my point of view, was rather unhappy and uh, what, 
worries me much more than the personal relationship between Putin, Bush and Blair is the fact that inside the Russian society now you're having the feeling of kind of irreversible divorce uh, with the Western uh, societies, important Western, Western values, including democratic values. And uh, this is certainly the result of the way the evolution of Russia um, followed after the collapse of Soviet Union and resignation of Gorbachev and the, uh, well, the cutting short of the Perestroika project. But in part, from my point of view, uh, it's also the responsibility of the West. Uh, now, the Georgia and Russia. Well, uh, from my point of view, it's, uh, it's anything you choose just the term. It's absurdity, it's stupidity, it's, it's a fault. And again, uh, what uh, concerns me more is uh, the, the fact that it affects uh, millions of people both in Russia and in Georgia, people who are, were brought up, who lived uh, in generations as friends, as allies, as uh, not only neighbors, but as members of, uh, of one family. After all, one decides how he prefers to, to live uh, in uh, one state, in different states, uh, well, I reminded you about the role the Georgians played in uh, Russian uh, history. Happily, it was not limited to the presence of a Georgian at the head of the, of the Soviet state for uh, 30 years. But uh, also happily, even the difficult relationship uh, between Russia and, uh, and Georgia now uh, uh, will not go up to the uh, uh, revival of, uh, of the Brezhnev doctrine or, or the Putin doctrine more or less, that could, uh, could evoke this, uh, let's say, sad memories. Mm. And the Crimea, the last, oh, the yeah. last question. Yeah, the Crimea, well, you know, after all, the, the, the easiest uh, way to solve the territorial disputes, actually there are two ways. Either you fight for the borders, or you uh, actually you behave as if uh, they are obsolete. They don't mean anymore. So the, the first way was the way of uh, empires, of quarrels, uh, and uh, both of empires, but also of the exploding empires. Take the case of Yugoslavia. And then there is another example of, uh, of the European Union, where you travel uh, uh, without uh, noticing the border, except... Uh, uh, in my case, when you yeah. travel from Paris yes. to London. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, Dr. Sked sitting very modestly at the very back of the room up there, the first, the first question. Then we take one more up, up there. So could, could I go back to um, Gorbachev and uh, his era rather than uh, what came afterwards? Um, I know there are lots of theories about American influence, and you've discounted these. Uh, and I've read Gorbachev's memoirs and Perestroika and what have you. Uh, the thing I find uh, difficult to uh, explain, and I hope you can explain it to me, therefore, is that where does the new thinking come from? How is it developed? 
we get told that Gorbachev's uh, policies are the, the result of the new thinking, but it's always sort of just there. When does it start? How does it develop? Why does Gorbachev take it up? Is it something he's uh, converted to, or is it something he pushes himself? Uh, I, I'd just like to know more about the new thinking as the sources of the uh, perestroika and glasnost, the origins of a very big question, which I'm sure Andre can shed some light. I'll take one more question. Uh, gentleman in the green, jumper up there. Yeah, please. No, you. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you speak? Oh, is it great? Looks green from here. Anyway, speak into the microphone, please. <laughs> um, I, I was struck, thank you very much for the talk, but I was very struck by your um, comment that Gorbachev liked the idea of the EU as a model. Why the EU? Why not the US? Um, in terms of saying... <laughs> And I'm talking about this. By the way, I'm I'm German. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why? <laughs> I would never have guessed. <laughs> why? Why not go with, let's say, Abe Lincoln, draw out your enemies, and then risk a civil war, unite the country in some ways, and say the union above everything, and whatever comes after, we'll figure out. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Interesting question. Uh, I'm uh, uh, really tempted to, uh, uh, to, to, to to stay more than even you, you can afford. <laughs> <laughs> we'll continue. At the well, same the, uh, the new political thinking, a uh, huge subject. Uh, uh, to tell you frankly, I, uh, uh, I even wrote a book about it. Uh, I'm looking for a publisher. If uh, well. Uh, uh, the new political thinking, uh, well, it's a, it's a formula, but uh, it came, f from my point of view, to try to summarize uh, it as a, a product of a, uh, of a certain process of, uh, of evolution of uh, Russian political elite and intellectual elite that... Uh, at the time uh, when it could observe uh, the obvious crisis of, uh, of the communist ideology, at least uh, the way it was applied uh, uh, throughout the Soviet experience, and having realized also, uh, having lived through the unfortunate uh, uh, history and sterility of, uh, of, uh, uh, of philosophy of confrontation, that was leading nowhere, if not to the Holocaust and to the, uh, to the world uh, nuclear conflict, uh, became quite sensitive to uh, uh, ideas of the, of the global world. Uh, the sources uh, are numerous, and uh, we know most of them. Uh, you can find them in the... Uh, in the papers of the Club of Rome, you can find them in the uh, Einstein-Russell Manifesto. You can find them in the uh, well, in the reflections of uh, representatives of intellectual elite uh, in uh, various countries. In Sakharov's, uh, let's say, statements as well, and uh, and thinking that means of uh, of those uh, uh, brave. Uh, Minds that uh, uh, understanding the, the uh, 
the, the, the dangerous way in which, in, into which was engaged the, uh, the world politics uh, at the period of, of Cold War, uh, started to look for rather uh, uh, solutions. And uh, one important element adding to it was certainly the, uh, the understanding of the uh, of the uniqueness of, uh, of humanity and also the limits uh, of, uh, uh, of the earth from the point of view of its resources, uh, its uh, population, the, uh, the fatality of the effect that the uh, uh, chaotic development of uh, human civilization may produce on the fate of the future generations. So, it's the combination of, I would say, intellectual courage, of social responsibility, well, and of a number of moral principles. So all of it um, combined uh, have produced uh, what Gorbachev and uh, his team have presented as uh, new political thinking, which was not uh, just another utopian project, but uh, from their point of view, they were convinced in it that was corresponding to the national interests of the Soviet Union at that time that was uh, at the, uh, well, let's say, exhausted by the, the arms race and that already have fallen, as I mentioned it. Uh, it, it, uh, it has lost already the Third World War since it uh, took it too seriously, at least the preparation uh, for it. And actually the Soviet Union and, and Soviet economy fell uh, from my point of view, victim to double ambition that uh, maybe neither of which could uh, be realized, but uh, certainly never both together. One, the, uh, the ambition of, uh, of social equality to be assured uh, by a state-run uh, economy. Uh, and the other one, the ambition to uh, match the... Uh, uh, it's uh, strategic uh, adversaries, the West. That means to play uh, the, the, the role of a superpower who would be as strong not only as the United States but as the combined uh, potential of uh, all of the NATO countries plus China, by the way, at a certain moment. Uh, yeah. Why the European Union... Uh, 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 and not uh, not the United States. Uh, well, you know the the, 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 the this philosophy of uh, brinkmanship, uh, uh, pushing the the, the, the the situation in a well. Dallas was uh, uh, suggesting it for international relations. Well, trying to apply it uh, inside your own country. Uh, would mean uh, certainly to go to the, to the brink of the civil war and that would have produced uh, a situation that uh, you would have no guarantees that you would control and can you imagine of a Yugoslavia with nuclear weapon? Andre, one very last question that I wanted to ask you um, in terms of your own personal uh, memory and your friendship with President Gorbachev. Um, we have uh, last week we heard from Gorbachev's biographer, Professor Archie Brown from Oxford University, and Archie is here with us today as well. And based on what Archie was telling us last week, I just wondered if I could be 
brave enough to ask you the question, if you were to use three terms, three adjectives to, to describe Gorbachev, which ones would you choose? Well, a very American type of... Uh yeah, I mean, we're getting <laughs> to the talk show part of this now. It's our last lecture for the year, so we can do that. More of a question. Well, uh, the, 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 the first three uh, qualities that come to my mind in a uh, way, well, one after another is uh, loyalty uh, to Teresa, to his friends, but also to his uh, convictions and principles, whatever, be they popular or not. And uh, then I would say uh, courage. Courage in the sense of certainly intellectual courage and uh, in the sense of, uh, uh, well, uh, daring to go where others uh, haven't dared to go and without being assured that uh, you are followed and even understood during your lifetime. And uh, then, well, uh, you insist on three, yes? <laughs> we like trees, I think, in, in <laughs> academic circles. It, it sounds so good. Okay. Uh, the third one is uh, the tremendous and surprising, uh, from my point of view, uh, uh, nervous resource, yes. you know, ro ro robustness. Uh, yeah. What would you say? Survivability, you? perhaps. I don't know. Maybe he, he's, he, he was attributing it to his peasant parents, uh, to his peasant origin. But uh, I remember very well that uh, on the numerous occasions, uh, a lot of people around him, me including, were under terrible stress, were panicking, were maybe hysterical uh, or something. Not him. Andrei Gershov, thank you very, very much for honoring us with your presence today. <laughs>